Hi, welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham, a retired Accenture executive. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Today, I'm talking with Beverly Teruli, newly appointed clinical assistant professor at NYU School of Professional Studies, specializing in human capital and human capital analytics. She's the former vice president of human capital strategy and advanced workforce analytics at PepsiCo, as well as having many other positions there during her 14-year career. She led a human capital practice at Accenture for several years and has been a part-time faculty member at Columbia University for the past two years. Beverly earned a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology and started her career at Bell South, which is now AT&T, developing and validating tests to hire frontline workers. So Bev, welcome to Third Act. I'm exhausted just reading your extensive bio and that didn't even count your extracurricular activities. (laughs) Well, thanks, Liz. I'm thrilled to be here talking (laughs) about my Third Act um, and how I got here. Uh, Fantastic. So as you said, I call this podcast Third Act, the first act being school and and getting your job. And I think most of my interviewees have been all straight A students, the usual, right? The second act being your person's big career, even if it's at multiple jobs. And the third act about finding your passion. So let's get into that. So kind of previewing things, you were told to early on to teach. Is that correct? Yeah, I would, uh, I would frame it as more suggested than told. But, okay. um, you know, back when I was in college, I was fortunate enough to, to attend a small liberal arts college called Franklin Marshall, where I had great student-teacher ratios, had a lot of contact with faculty, and I had access to a really great career center. And like a lot of students, when I went away to college, I sort of followed my heart and my interests. I ended up majoring in psychology, which... Interestingly enough, at, at FNM was kind of empirical and experimental, not so much, you know, kind of clinical. And, you know, I wanted, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I chose industrial and organizational psychology to get my PhD. And in spite of the fact that, to be honest, I really did, had little idea of what it was. Um, I had never taken a class in it. But, you know, it was, sounded interesting. And I wasn't exactly sure what I should do with that degree once I got out. So I went to the Career Center. And if you're familiar and have done that, you've complete yes. interest inventories. And, you know, they kind of tell you what you're similar to, like people in, in specific fields. And when the career psychologist looked at my results, he said, you know, you ought to go into academia. You know, even in graduate school, the assumption was um, that once you earned your PhD, you'd go on and get a great job at a research university. And when I went to school, and I was one of the very few who wanted to work in industry once I got my PhD. Um, And there were really two reasons for that. One was a little bit crass. I wanted to make more money than I thought I could teaching. The second reason was really, I saw an academic job at that time as a relatively lonely existence, especially the research side of things. Mm -hmm. And I really even then recognized that I derived my energy from working around other people. And I wanted to be part of a larger organization where I got to do that. So you got your PhD. Talk a little bit about this first job you had developing and validating tests to hire frontline workers. Was that sort of a new thing back then? No, actually not. Okay. Um, So because, you know, industrial and organizational psychology is one of those sort of obscure areas that not a lot of people know a lot about, but it's been around for, you know, probably 100, 100 and some odd 125 years or so. And it it really got its start, interestingly enough, 
in the military. So back during World War I, when they were conscripting hundreds, thousands, you know, of, of men, they needed an easy way to try to figure out, you know, like, should you be in the artillery? Should you be oh, in, you know? Okay. And so they, they developed these tests, right, to sort of identify what abilities people had so they could kind of sort them. And that's really the genesis of the field. So, you know, it's been around for a while, but, you know, when I got out of school, my first job, as you mentioned, was, was at Bell, Bell South in, in Atlanta. You know, you kind of know that what, what Bell I, South is, but for, I do. for young, young, younger people who might not, it was one of um, what were called the, the regional operating companies that were created out of the breakup of AT&T back in the day. And now they're back together again. So right. that just shows you, you know, a little bit of what happens in the, uh, uh, the M&A world. And I joined a team there of a, a group of psychologists and we, they were, it was called Human Resources Research. And that's where I created and validated employment tests. So I was the person who was doing all of the job analysis to identify what skills were needed and then created the tests. And sometimes they were, you know, aptitude tests. Um, sometimes they were interviews and then validated them to make sure that we weren't being, uh, having an adverse impact on specific diverse groups. And I did that all for frontline um, union representative, represented Interesting. jobs. Yeah. Interesting. How long did you do that for? Oh gosh. Um, I was at Bell South for about seven and a half years. So I probably did that for about half of that time, maybe about three years. And then I kind of moved into, and I had a chance to do something entirely different. It was a, an area that didn't exist before. So it had been newly created in employee development. And we were focused on developing skills in employees outside of the classroom. And so basically think of reskilling, you know, you, yes. people are talking about reskilling today. Well, we were doing that back in the day. And so Bell South was a great experience and entirely because I got exposed from a human capital perspective on kind of the hiring and developing of talent in big corporation. And then eventually, and this is where I met you at Accenture, eventually you moved to Accenture. And I remember you were one of the early leaders in the human capital practice. Did you get hired in specifically to do that? I did, actually. I started in Atlanta and um, was then Anderson Consulting, right, right. now Accenture. Yes. And uh, I was hired in to, uh, because I had background in, in high-tech and telecommunications, which is the vertical I worked in primarily, and doing change management and human performance consulting. What year was that? Do you remember? Oh, gosh. Mid-90s? Uh, Mid-90s. Yeah. So if I remember back then, that was when I was just jamming in giant systems. And I can remember, was it about the mid-90s that we had our first sort of human capital slash change management person on the project who actually started thinking through what might be the impacts to the people on the project? I mean, it's sort of a duh, right? But what was it? I mean, when you're thinking about it now, right? And you, my thing is like, never touch technology unless you figured out all the people part first. But like, what was it like? I mean, you must've been like trying to push a, you know, push a rope uphill or whatever that phrase is, right? against the Accenture culture at that point or the Anderson culture? It absolutely was. I mean, as you point out, you know, at the time, uh, Accenture slash Anderson Consulting was very focused on the technology, big technology implementations, right. business process improvement, you know, and honestly, every project was a challenge to get both the clients and the Accenture partners to spend the time and the money on the human aspects of the large transformations. And I, you know, I might be getting the, the numbers wrong on this one, Liz, but I 
don't think so. I, I remember, you know, the methodologies always suggested that the rule of thumb was that 25% of the budget was to be allocated to like change management and training yes. and communications, et cetera. And every time, you know, we were going to sell something to the client, we were lucky to get about 10%. And even then that was the first place that they wanted to cut when, exactly. you know, money got tight oh, on the project. Goodness. And I think it got better over time, but you know, it was always a bit of a struggle, and, you know, and it helped if the client kind of got it. So, um, you know, clients always sort of determined the direction that the project went. So if they were, you know, into that piece of it, then I think it made it a little bit easier. Well, and what's interesting to me is you kept at it because it's obviously been your career, but you must have seen something in the development of this practice that sort of kept you going during that. And so if you think about your your industrial and organizational psychology background and then the development of that into a you know practice that can be implemented globally i mean what was what was starting to spark in the 90s and the early noughts in terms of people's understanding of human capital and why that was important one of the things that the the whole experience at Accenture made me think about and realize is that and it's really informed my thinking since then was that when you're talking about organizational performance, it really has to operate as a system, right? And, mm-hmm. and we think of it as like, especially at Accenture, right? We had people who were experts in technology, experts in business process um, improvement, you know, experts in strategy, experts in change management people and human performance. But that's not how the real world works, right? Like the whole thing is a system and you mm-hmm. can't just kind of, you know, focus on one to the, to the, uh, to the detriment of the other. And I think, you know, from a, you know, when we talk about human capital management, I, th- I sort of think of it that way. I don't think of it as just a lot of HR people think of human capital management as the talent piece of the mm-hmm. equation. I see it much broader uh, because I don't think you can separate out the talent from, you know, the ecosystem that it operates in. So you eventually go, you leave and go to PepsiCo. Why, why did you do that? And what did you go to do? So I got an opportunity to go to PepsiCo, which was interesting because I had never worked in consumer products before. So um, that was a bit of a jump in learning a new industry in its entirety. So I spent a lot of time doing a lot of, of reading, trying to understand, you know, of course, every, every industry has their own acronyms. So I had to learn a whole new language mm-hmm, in effect. Mm-hmm. But my first role was uh, leading a team that was doing organization and management development for the corporate group. So I was, I was working at a headquarters. And think of it as supporting the, um, the C-suite execs and their groups and their functions on everything from, you know, doing employee surveys and then actioning against those surveys, you know, making sure that employees were engaged. At that time, we were talking about work-life balance, which we know is sort of a kind of a misnomer, I think. Mm-hmm. And I also got requests to do, I developed the first fun, uh, finance uh, university for PepsiCo and also deeply involved in succession planning for the most senior roles mm-hmm. and did that for probably, you know, three years or so and then um, switched entirely and became an HR business partner for multiple global functions, including our operations, which are all of our plants all over the world, procurement, R&D, finance, and legal. And then most recently at PepsiCo, um, I led a team doing human capital strategy and advanced uh, workforce analytics. Got it. And during that time, somewhere in there, Indra Nui became the CEO. Was that uh, when you got there or shortly afterwards? 
Yes, I joined in September of 2006. Indra became CEO in October of 2006. So she was CEO for 12 years. So for the majority of my tenure at PepsiCo. But yeah, I mean, and, you know, working in the corporate headquarters, I had a pretty good amount of exposure to Indra. And I like to always describe it as I became a student of hers, just watching her over the years. And it was really fascinating to see how she developed into a, you know, um, into to a CEO, if you will, right? Uh, I'm sure. And, and she asked you to do uh, an HR strategy for her, right? Yeah. So a few years um, into my tenure, the CHRO was asked to develop an HR strategy because believe it or not, I think up until that point, we really had not had a PepsiCo-wide HR strategy. So I was tasked with leading a small team of, of people to do that, which was really quite fascinating. We ended up with a with kind of a framework that that set out the work that we did over the next five years, all the way from, you know, the technology pieces of HR, because at the time it was pretty dispersed. So we had mm-hmm. data in different places. And so, you know, we were trying to bring all that together all the way through, you know, what kind of cultural aspects we wanted to, to sort of develop. And, you know, back then when we were doing this, the, remember the BRICS countries? Like, so yeah. you know, everything was Brazil, happening in Russia, Brazil, right, right, China, right. Russia, India. Yeah. And so, you know, we were looking at how do we shift, you know, our talent, if you will, to some of those places and what were some of the, the things that we had to think about there. So, so that was, um, you know, probably 2008 or 2009. And then since it was a five-year plan, um, we needed to re- refresh it. So around about 2014, 15, somewhere in there, we were asked to redo it um, within this construct around digital transformation. So it was kind of, hey, recreate, you know, a refresh our town strategy and do it within this framework of digital transformation. But, you know, the thing is, it seems like a no-brainer today, but at the time, no one was really talking about it and understood what that meant, or very few people. Um, So again, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've learned along the way that informed that, that strategy was, you know, we didn't just talk about people. We talked about infrastructure. We talked about organizational capabilities that were going to need to be developed, which then lead you to, well, do you go hire a bunch of people that, for example, you know, no e-commerce, do you develop them internally, et cetera. And then of course the employee experience, which was starting to be discussed pretty, pretty heavily at that point. Interesting. so, you know, I, to me, that was just another example of how, you know, human capital management has to be thought of as part of this, this broader system. You, you've also told me that you that you'd started this practice around people analytics or PepsiCo started it. Talk about what that meant at PepsiCo. Yeah, that's a great question because um, I think there's a lot of confusion about what people analytics is and it means different things to different people. You know, for me, it's a bit of an imprecise term. So, you know, if you talk to people at some companies, what they mean by analytics is really reporting and dashboards, right? So, you know, they're they're reporting out on some metrics on a regular basis, which is true. And that is part of people analytics. But when I took over the group in 2014, I determined that reporting really wasn't a value add for my team. So Mm -hmm. we had a whole group of people, large organization doing the the HRIS um, stuff where they were responsible for the data. I was not responsible for the data. So my team kind of was very focused. It was a small team. It was, you know, about 12 people at, at max on more value added analytics. So, you know, I'll give you my definition of, of how I see people analytics. I see it as, as kind of the application of statistics, technologies, and experimental approaches to solving people-related business problems. And there's a lot to unpack in that, uh, that sentence. Mm-hmm. But, 
but again, I, you know, I focus on business problems that have a people component to them. And, you know, I think I did something that, you know, based on my network of people analytics experts, that was a little bit atypical when I built my team. I intentionally hired a very diverse team of people, not just demographically, but in terms of their academic backgrounds. So, you know, I had PhDs in chemistry and economics and sociology and biology and, you know, some stats and comp sci people and um, somebody with a marketing analytics degree. And the rationale behind that was I always felt that, you know, if you take people that have different backgrounds, they're going to come at a problem slightly differently. And, you know, I always think it comes up, you come up with a better solution that way. So uh, that's interesting. So you had a chemistry PhD looking at your people analytics? Did. He was awesome. He was actually from Yale. He had a PhD from Yale in chemistry. And he was one of the guys that really did a lot of the work. We did a model at one point looking at what people-related factors actually drive financial performance. So it was a it was a model looking at a kind of a six and 12 month lag on uh-huh. financial performance in each of our businesses. And we looked at a variety of different variables to see what popped. So he was really driving that. Having economists on the team was yes. terrific because they bring a very different, very different perspective and they're familiar with different data sets than everybody else. I actually had a computational genomist wow. on my team, which again, fascinating guy, but he was amazing at any th- at, at building applications. So we actually had him building apps for us and mining social media. And so, you know, they all kind of brought a different skill set and different way of looking at things. It was great. I loved working with them. So I, you know, I like to sort of thread the needle on how my guests get to their third act, which we're going to talk about here in a minute when you go to NYU. But it's clear to me that this research on people decisions, the, the science around it is something that you've always had a a passion for. Do I have that right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for me, having been around HR people and in the HR space for a number of years, I think the one thing that, that has frustrated me a little bit is I didn't see HR being as grounded in data and making using data to make decisions. And that's very different than other functions, right? So right. You, know, you look at you look at marketing and and how they've evolved over time and finance and you know and I think, you know, businesses are run on numbers, right? So, you know, business people are used to looking at numbers. I didn't understand why HR would be different, you know, and I think ultimately you know, for years, I was tired of hearing HR doesn't get invited to the table and, you know, have a seat at the table. And I think part of it was because we didn't talk in their language. Got it. I think, yeah. you know, Good point. Once, right. once you start talking in their language, and I will tell you, Liz, that, you know, during my time running the analytics team there, it was always easier to work directly with business team, business executives than it was with the HR executives because the business guys just got it right away and they could uh-huh. see the value in it right away. Oh, isn't that interesting? And you said to me that you thought PepsiCo did a really good job with their people analytics program. Did you see, I mean, I assume you saw what some other companies were doing. What, what sort of set them apart? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would say other, I mean, I think there are tons of companies out there who are doing great people analytics work for sure. But, you know, I think the things that I thought were the most impactful at PepsiCo were always things that, that either saved the company money, made them more efficient. And I'll just give you a few examples, right? So 
we, and these are more HRE rather than business, but I can give you some business examples too. But, you know, one of the things we were able to do with our, or for our recruiting folks was, you know, they were going to 125 campuses every year, just in very simple things that we did and, uh, and built for them, allowed them to reduce the numbers of campuses they went to every year by almost 50% in wow. some cases, depending upon what they were recruiting for. And also identified some campuses that they should have been going to uh-huh. universities that they had not been thinking about because it just wasn't on their radar screen. Right. But these were like highly, you know, produced very qualified students who would be successful and um, also were more diverse. And so it was like a win-win. You left Pepsi this year, PepsiCo, and given your resume and expertise, I assume you were uh, very sought out by some other corporations for big HR jobs, but you chose to not do that. Why is that? Yep. So I left in February uh, and I did, of course, get contacted by uh, about quite a few roles, even, you know, interestingly enough, even during the, the, the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after 30 years, 30 plus years, actually, in corporate America, the way I would describe it is I, I was ready to be re-energized. Like, you know, when, you, when we were talking about this kind of third act idea, you know, the sense that you're not done yet, I think mm-hmm. is pretty common, you know, among people who um, maybe in our generations, if you will, you know, and for me, I still get excited when I learn something, mm-hmm. you know, some cool new thing, right? So, right. you know, for me, it was like, I know I'm not done, but I couldn't get energized about another corporate job. So, you know, I knew that wasn't the right thing to do at that point. And well, I should probably ask, how did you get teaching at Columbia? And then how did you end up at NYU from there? Yeah. So um, Columbia, really interesting. I, you know, the one thing that I think I've learned as I got older is to say yes more. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Really, seriously. um, I know. I know. (laughs) I got told to do that when I retire. Say yes for the first year. because I'd become so good at saying no because I was always overbooked. Exactly. Yeah. But, um, so about two and a half years ago, you know, they called Columbia called me, a recruiter called me and she's like, Hey, do you want to teach? And, and, um, so I started teaching. I'm actually, I think I may have been the first, um, hire in the, in the human capital management program, master's program at Columbia. So I started teaching part-time. I actually developed, um, the introductory course and, uh, and then taught it. And then I taught some people analytics stuff, but, you know, people kept asking me early on, like why I was doing it. You know, you don't do it for the money for sure. That's right. Um, but I was thinking, why not? You know, mm-hmm. if I hate it, I'll just stop doing it. But, you know, after the first semester, I was, I was kind of hooked to be mm-hmm. honest at the end of the first class, I had a bunch of students, you know, kind of come up and thank me and ask mm-hmm. me if I was teaching other classes that they could take. And I just have a funny story. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, and then of course you get your student evaluations yep. several weeks after classes. And I was one Saturday morning, I was reading them. I got them um, online and, and I laughed out loud when I read one student comments because she was taught, she said, oh, I was talking to a friend about, you know, about you, right? You're an instructor. And she said to the friend, I wonder if she has a son I could marry. So oh. I can just, listen to, <laughs> so I can just listen to her talk about academic papers she's read. And I just laughed out loud. And I thought, that's the best comment I think I've ever gotten on feedback. Oh, I love that. I love that. I wonder if she has a son. It is, as a teacher myself, there's nothing better than reading those positive reviews from the young students who are like, you're amazing. Because they write things like that. You're so amazing. I've learned so much. You're so inspiring. You know, coming out of corporate, you maybe you got one piece of feedback a year 
you're doing fine. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's so funny. All right. So, uh, oh gosh, you would marry, marry your son. Um, how'd you end up, <laughs> how'd you end up at NYU? Yeah. So this is a, this is a great example of, you know, the importance of getting out there and networking. So, you know, for years I belonged to various professional organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and through one of them, I met and became friendly with um, the woman who ha- happens to be the academic director for the human capital management program at NYU. And, oh, there you, go. you know, every time I spoke to her, she was trying to convince me to come and teach for her, but you know, I just couldn't fit that in my schedule. And it just so happened that when I decided to leave PepsiCo, she had a full-time position available. And so, you know, there were quite a few challenges because, you know, think about the timing of this, right? right? It was around March of this year. So, you know, I had to interview and do my presentation to the committee all online, and then they put on a hiring freeze, so they had to get an exception with the provost, and, but it all worked out, and I'm, you know, super excited about this next chapter. And what is it you're going to teach? I'm actually the program lead for the Human Capital Analytics and Technology Master's Degree Program. Wow. Okay. Um, so I'll be, I'll be teaching both analytics and I'll be teaching general human capital management courses, but also trying to grow the program, establishing relationships with companies that may want to work, you know, either work with the students on projects or, you know, hire them afterwards. And the, the human capital analytics and technology program there is, is actually pretty cool because it's, I think the only, as far as I could tell when I did my research, the only STEM designated such program by the uh, U.S. Department of Education. So means it's meets certain qualifications for quantitative, you know, methods and, and, and skills to, to increase STEM employment in, in the U.S. It's largely online, which is great. And it was designed that way. And it kind of focuses on current trends. So it, it's constantly refreshed. You're going to pull through all of your people analytics learnings and the importance, et cetera. I mean, that, is that the thread you're going to push to your students, you know, sort of the examples that you've given us here? Yeah. You know, I did teach a people analytics class at Columbia last semester. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important, at least for me, you know, analytics is a funny thing, right? You you get some people who are, I remember doing a podcast several years ago and they were interviewing me and the guy said to me, well, you know, what technologies are you most excited about? And I said to him, well, you know, it's not that I'm excited. I said, getting excited about technologies is sort of like, you know, you're building a house and you get excited about the hammer. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, the technologies are important, but they're important for a broader purpose, right? So you can think of analytics and get all excited about, you know, whether it's AI or the next big thing, right? VR. And you can get yourself, you know, steeped into the, to the, and it's important, this stuff's important, you know, into the analytics and the statistics and all those sorts of things. But at the end of the day for me, the thing that I want to infuse in students is thinking about like lifting their head up and thinking about, okay, well, what's the impact all of this is having? And what's the, you know, what are some of the things you need to be thinking about? Because one of the things I wrestled with very early on when I took on the analytics role was just because you can do things doesn't necessarily mean you should do them. Mm. So the, the, eth- the ethics around- I was just going to ask know, that about ethics, right? Absolutely. The, the ethics around using data- you know, when I was at, at PepsiCo, uh, I used to joke that I had, you know, the legal team on speed dial, right? Because, you know, we, we, you know, we, we always worked with the lawyers to sort of understand and the, uh, both privacy and employment, you know, to understand, well, what are some of the implications? 
questions, right? And they always kept us pretty honest about like, well, why do you want to do that? What's the business case for doing that? Which right. I think is helpful to, to have people sort of challenge your thinking on certain things. So you and I talked a little bit about a reckoning in higher ed post COVID-19. And I think I've mentioned I'm a big fan of your uh, fellow professor, Scott Galloway, who does a, a podcast called Pivot. And he talks about this all the time. But I mean, what do you see happening and how might that impact uh, your work at NYU? Yeah, that's a really you know, big question in, in the educational community. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I, I'm sort of excited to be in, at this place at this time because mm-hmm. it's, it, you know, and I think Scott might describe it as a reckoning, right? I mm-hmm. think there is, I think it is a reckoning. But, you know, NYU has publicly announced that they're going to be bringing students back to campus in the fall. Um, mm-hmm. And several other universities have done something similar. You know, I think, and, and I think Scott makes this point too, it's the details of what that looks like are probably to be determined. And I think that's okay because, you know, the situation is so fluid. So, you know, even in New York and the New New York, New Jersey area where I live, you know, we're starting to, we, you know, we, we had that big horror at the beginning, things got better, you know, now you're starting to see a little bit of, of an uptick again as things open up and, you know, people come from other parts of the country. So, you know, it's a pretty dynamic situation. And I think the, the universities are having to be very agile about that, you know, but I do have a few thoughts. I think bringing students back to campus is probably more important for undergrads than grad students mm-hmm. in some cases, other than maybe, you know, people who do lab work. But I think, you know, the student experience is just particularly important for freshmen, you know, and, and other undergraduates. Um, you know, the program I lead personally is already designed primarily online. So this is less of an issue for us. But the other thing that, and in fact, we were just having a strategic planning session with, within the program at NYU the other day. And, you know, I made the point that I think in academia, we have to stop thinking about online learning as kind of a second best option. Mm-hmm. You know, academia is notorious notoriously change averse, right? So they don't like to change. And I think it is unfortunate that because of the coronavirus and everybody had to take their in-person courses and shift them online. So it wasn't necessarily the greatest online experience. You know, simply lifting and shifting doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You you know, you really have to design intentionally to have a good online experience. Mm -hmm. And I I frankly think if if we take a step back and do it well, I don't think it could be second best at all. I think it can be just as good, maybe mm-hmm. even better in some cases. Yeah, I would um, agree. But y- you can't have the same, the mindset of, oh, I just want to take my in-person class and put it online. It doesn't work that way. At the University of Washington, where I teach, they're, they're already telling us we're going to go back, but be prepared to go online at any minute, right? Just depending on what happens with the virus. And lots of education coming down through the spring and the summer about best practices of going online. And I like, I agree with you. You can't you got to approach it completely differently and think about the technology and how to make the technology more user effective as well, right? Using all its features, how do you keep people engaged? I have talked to graduate students who, who, who actually love this, right? Because then they can, they can fit it into their schedules. They, you know, they feel they can work. They don't waste as much time commuting to campus, et cetera, right? So, but I think you're right on the undergraduate experience. We'll have to see, see what happens there. I thought about naming this podcast and you mentioned this, I'm not done yet because that's how I feel. So what aren't you done with yet? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm definitely not done learning. I mean, I, one of the, one of the people who used to work for me at PepsiCo, um, 
called me a human library one time. So I thought that was a great description. Uh, so I, I love that. I love learning all kinds of new things. So I'm definitely not done with that. Uh, and I get excited about it. And, and you know, I, 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 I'm definitely not done spreading the gospel of the importance of evidence-based decision-making in HR. I think, you know, we've talked about it, but a lot of companies and, and organizations still aren't doing it to the best of their ability. So those two things, like, you know, this evidence-based decision-making as well as, you know, the systems approach to human capital management. I think these are two things that human capital management in general and HR as a function could really benefit from going forward. So, you know, I'm kind of going to be the evangelist for that. And you'll be creating all kinds of protégés who will be evangelizing for you, right? Through the NYU program. Exactly. I love that. Exactly. And that was, and that was my third sort of, you know, what am I excited about? And what am I not done with? But I'm like super excited to, you know, because I, you think about it, right? And you have this experience teaching at, at University of Washington. You have the ability to influence how these people are thinking and how they're going to be leading, you know, in HR in the future. And that's pretty cool. It, I mean, that's I, like sort of, it's super cool. And, you know, it's funny because I teach in the business school. And a lot of times I'll get students who will ask me about their major. And if any of them say they're even leaning towards HR, I push them so hard. I'm like, I think that is the most important field going forward of any of the management disciplines. Because number one, I think it's really, it's much harder than people give it credit for, right? Because people are always the hardest part of any problem. And I, I just see it as completely a differentiating factor for companies going forward and how they use their data, how they create the right employee experience, how they create a, if you will, sort of, maybe college or even before college experience for their employees to, you know, to create a good brand, et cetera. Right. And because that's what, what's what employees demand. So I think we're on the same wavelength there. Yeah. Great. So thanks for uh, pushing people to HR. I think that's a, and I'll push them to NYU for graduate school. How's that? (laughs) There you go. That's even better. (laughs) Anyway, well, thank you Beverly for being on third act and you know what, we'll have you back to talk about uh, the program you've created and the, the thousands of minds you've influenced online and in person. It will be uh, interesting to see. That's great. I look forward to it, Liz. And thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to talk about my third act. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.